Have you ever wondered how the separate threads of your life fit in to one big picture? How the individual moments of challenge and triumph connect to one another to form the great meaning of your life? I am Anna Mullins, your Life Story Editor, and I'm convinced that making sense of our deepest pain can help us understand our deepest purpose. In my speaker training program and on this podcast, I help people weave together those confusing, often shameful pieces of their past, revealing the life-changing lessons that create their profound new story. Welcome to Unapologetic Stories, where secrets are out and the truth is in. Welcome back, storytellers. We have a fantastic edit on the way for you today, especially for you parents out there. I am talking today to author Rebecca Wilson, who has not only written a powerful memoir entitled Rebecca Grows Up, in parentheses, at 40, she also carries a Bachelor of Kinesiology from UBC, and perhaps more importantly from the same institution, a Certificate in Infant Development that was inspired by her own painful childhood experiences growing up with a parent who had severe psychological issues that prevented her from forming a secure attachment. We're going to talk about more attachment things later as well. And also led her into the work she is doing today as an infant development consultant trained in, of course, attachment parenting. Rebecca, welcome to Unapologetic Stories podcast. Anna, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. Oh, it's absolutely my my pleasure, my pleasure. Now we have so much to talk about today, including this incredible book, which we're going to get to later. But I wanted to start um, in kind of a a different way. I don't usually start like this, but this really struck me this morning. I saw a post on your Instagram, and your Instagram is at Rebecca Grows Up. We'll of course put that in the show notes. It was a picture from I'm going to presume like the mid to late '80s by yeah. the dress you were wearing yes, yeah, as a yeah, child. Yeah. It has like, you know, the apron, the apron at the top with the like scalloped edges. Like I had probably (laughs) eight of those myself. It's hilarious. Um, But so, so sweet. So cute. A picture of young Rebecca in a party dress and it looks like maybe a birthday party. Yep. And standing next to you is, I presume your mother. That's right. In the picture. Uh, You are smiling in the picture, opening maybe a gift or something. A new wallet. Uh, Yeah. A new wallet. (laughs) Lovely. Yes. Um, And the caption reads, and I'm, I'm taking just pieces of the caption, but it was really powerful. And the caption reads, I would trade every happy picture in exchange for unconditional mother's love. I would erase any of these memories for a hug, an embrace that feels warm and safe. The little girl in this photo didn't need anything other than safe love. I would give all the dresses, gifts, candles, cakes, and parties back if it meant I could have been loved for just being me. It is so sad to hear you read that back to me. (laughs) That's really powerful. Just hit me again the same way it did when I first read it. Just if I could just have been loved for being me. You know, 
um, you mentioned in the intro that I was raised uh, by a single parent who had severe psychological issues as and as a child you don't you don't know that mm-hmm. um, and you learn that when you behave in a certain way that's when you receive love and if you re- uh, behave in a, a different way um, maybe you're having a tantrum or whining um, uh, not conforming to what your parent wants that you you learn that that behavior got you adverse re- reactions and so you right. really learn how to you learn how to please you learn how to behave in a way that gets you that love that children desperately need and want and so years ago my mom made me a photo album a scrapbook actually and it probably took her m- months to make you know scrapbooks right cut out scalloped edges and stickers yes. and you know, uh, pictures and captions. And I, I look at that whole book and um, I, I don't feel anything when I look at, I don't feel any of what she's trying to portray in those pictures. I just look at that and feel like I, I you know, when you're a child and you see children going to their parents for a loving embrace or a hug and mine never felt like what I saw others get. It just wow. didn't feel the same. And so today's today's post, I was reminiscing, looking through these photos, thinking, you know, I, I don't want any of these photos because they, they don't feel the way that they look. They look really oh. happy. Wow, that's really powerful. And the fact is, is it does look very happy. Mm-hmm. It does With- look, if I didn't see the caption, if I hadn't read the backstory there and just flipped by it, yeah. I would have presumed there was a young girl with yeah. a loving mother. who was getting a birthday gift in a beautiful dress and was smiling the whole time. And instead, if you think maybe you can remember or that specific incident, but when you go back to that actual day and that actual moment, the, the real feeling there was what? The real feeling is I, I better show how much I appreciate all of this. I better validate her, validate her, all her hard work that went into this cake and these presents and, my friends over and there's balloons hanging from the ceiling and I, I better show her that I appreciate it. Cause if I don't, there's going to be a fight later. There's going to be yelling about how much I don't appreciate all she does for me. So that's wow. what goes, that's what I see. I see me making, yeah, I see a little girl making sure she lets her mom know that she did a really good job. Oh my word. That's a lot to put yeah. on a small human. It is. And you just learn um, that that's what you have to do. Mm. Um, unfortunately at that time in my life, maybe a few years prior to that, um, we were living in Penticton at the time and I heard some odd noises in, in my house and it was in the middle of the night and I uh, left my bedroom to try to find the source of these sounds and, um, led me down the hall to, um, my brother's bedroom. And I just didn't, it was dark and I couldn't see her or him I just saw bodies and I saw one body on top of another body and I saw hair flailing all over the place and I hid behind the big armchair and um, I think that that really set the stage for me Uh, I think that that was a traumatic event for a six-year-old to witness realizing that that was your mom and if I don't behave well that that is going to come and happen to me too Oh, such an early age to begin witnessing such horrendous abuse, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I had suppressed that memory for so long, actually. Um, I didn't forget it, but I just, it was up there just floating around in my head, infiltrating, I'm sure my life and my, 
relationships and how I, how I behave. But I think that was probably my, one of the first triggering or traumatic events uh, for me. Yeah. I bet. And now, I mean, certainly in the work that you do now as a professional, looking back and stepping out uh, loosely and with air quotes, use the term objectively, because of course it's your subjective personal experience, but looking at it now, you can articulate what that six-year-old may have been thinking and processing and identifying as if I don't want that to happen, I certainly better put a smile on and wear this dress. Absolutely. And so we would call that like disorganized attachment where I'm attached to my main caregiver, but not in a healthy way. I'm attached mm-hmm. because I know I need her to survive. I need her for food and clothing and um, uh, shelter to, to live. So it's, I'm attached mm-hmm. to her, but not in a secure, safe attachment. It's disorganized. Right. And when I when I became a mom in 2010, um, I l- learned about the infant development program because my little girl came at 32 weeks. So she came two months early and, um, and I was basically lived at the NICU for 31 days, trying to care for her to come home. And, um, so that, so I was referred to the program that I now work in and, that is what prompted me to get into this career because I just felt so attached to my daughter and this woman would come to my home and help me monitor her development and make sure she's reaching her milestones. And it gave me such peace of mind as a new parent, a parent to a preemie um, that I was like, I need to get into this. I need, I need to be in this work because I, I love, I love, I love watching parents. I love evolving as a parent. Like I, I have never grown as probably yourself. I've never grown as much as I have um, in my life since becoming a mom. That is my biggest period of growth. Yeah. And that's when I learned. Yeah. What what strikes me honestly here, and I'm so interested to come back to kind of the academia of the attachment styles, but what is striking me here is that there's this fear and this self-doubt that's kind of instilled at an early age for you from a mother figure And then you become a mother yourself. Now, first of all, tell us how many children you have and what ages they are. Let's give them a shout out. (laughs) I have three babies. Um, Yeah. So I have my eldest daughter. She's 11. And I have my second daughter who is six. And my partner and I just had our third baby who she bravely carried. um, And he's three months old, a little boy. So right in the uh, thick of it then. Yeah. Right. So we're back into the thick of it. So, you know, I kind of think of it as I got a, I got a newborn baby without any of the really hard work. So yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> it's like you had to do it the first time, but maybe not the third time. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. Phenomenal. So, now, and yeah. having children yourself, uh, the question that was kind of coming up for me here is having had uh, what seems like a very harmful and traumatic mother role model, if we can call it that, yeah. how has motherhood been for you? How, what was that journey like stepping into that role yourself? Okay. <laughs> that is a big question. So, I wanted to be everything my mom wasn't. Right. So I would, um, uh, my whole goal was to not repeat the past. So I wanted to be the cycle breaker. I wanted to make sure that I love my children unconditionally. I want to make sure that they, they know that no matter how angry they get at me, I'm not going to be mean. I won't say harmful things. I won't take, I won't remove love. I will never remove love. Whew just had a big sigh there. You will never remove love. And, and 
I mean, I think we get this from your personal story, but is that what you would experience or what you did experience as a child that love would be removed if you acted in a certain way? And maybe I'm going to plug in this word here too. If you felt anything other than happiness, would that be true? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Anna. Yep. If I, if I was sad and went to her, say she did something that made me feel sad, it would be turned around and messed up and put it back on me. And uh, what is that saying? I still can't say it properly. Parent, parentified, parentified, parentified. So I would then have to parent her feelings when I was originally the one who was sad. Right. Um, I don't know how that has to do with, I kind of got lost there for a second. What we were No, I think I, not yeah. at all. I think but, what, a, what a kind of full circle revelation here is that you, cause we're talking about you stepping into the role of being a mother or becoming a yeah. mother after yeah. having experienced a mother who showed you that love was conditional. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Right. And yet you yeah. really, I mean, I, I say this kind of ironically, I'm talking about you entering your role as mother, i.e. the time you carried your first child and brought a child into the world, but you were a mother long before that to a parent who couldn't parent you is yes. maybe what I'm hearing. Yeah. It, it, you know, and, the, and it can bring you back to an example of that. When I was 13, my mom got into a car accident and, um, and she, she was okay, but she was pretty scared and shaken up and came home and it was just her and I, and she um, relied on me to console her from her car accident. And oh, yeah. And I just, I remember I, I re- go back to that moment and I feel really, uh, like that, like kind of icky. Like, I don't know how to console your, your feelings. And it's sad that she didn't have anyone else, an adult or didn't go to another adult for that, that she put it on me. But that's an example of how I would have to parent my mom and handle her feelings. So for me to go to her with a problem that I had with her, there is no point because uh, that's kind of narcissistic behavior of, well, I'm going to flip that and turn it so that you actually think that uh, I'm the one that's sad. You're actually not sad. What happened to you is not wrong. What happened to me is wrong. And then you're just like a kid and you're like, okay, okay. I have no no idea what happened here. I just know that my feelings aren't, aren't right. They're not valid. And uh, I actually don't feel them. And you don't feel them anymore because you eventually, I would imagine at some point, a child would probably numb out. Absolutely. Yep. And then you dissociate. And I didn't learn about dissociation until I went to therapy and I started that journey three years ago and I learned all about dissociation and dissociative tendencies. And that is how so many of us cope is uh, we, we, a quick definition of dissociation, we disconnect from what's real so that we don't have to cope with what is actually happening. Perhaps you've been triggered and you're like, I, uh, okay, I checked out, Rebecca's gone. I'm just gonna uh, numb myself and dissociate and go to a comfort space and ignore all of these feelings because I don't even have any tools. to. Right. Yeah. Okay. And this isn't probably specific just to having say a narcissistic parent. Mm -hmm but could be related to any trauma or yeah. any trigger. If the listeners are yeah. thinking, wait, that sounds like me as well. Even uh, maybe yes. they had a healthy parent yep. that are still traumatized and dissociating. What does dissociating look like as an action in your world? What does that okay. mean for you? In my world, I don't dissociate as much anymore. When I find, feel it coming on, um, uh, I, um, it's shakiness. If we're talking about feelings, it's a loss of breath. It's a shakiness and it's a complete shutdown. So they're on void, void of happiness, void of sadness, void of anger. It's just 
closed off uh, when I would prior to knowing I was dissociating. Um, I write about this in my book and I've never, I never shared about it till I wrote it, wrote in my book, but you know, I used to hear voices in my head um, in bed late at night and I would hear um, not one voice, but multiple voices. They would be all mixed together. And I describe it as like you're at a social event or you're at Costco or music and noise and it's all mixed up. And I would lay in bed and try to like pick out the voices or the sounds and I never could um, narrow it down, I'd fall asleep. But I did learn that that was like the only time in the day when the house was still and quiet. And it's like my brain did, my body was ensuring I'm not actually going to like live in this silence that I got to keep busy. I can't wow. stay present. Um, and another, another dissociative tendency for me was uh, hearing symphonies and orchestras again in bed late at wow. night. And yeah, it was, it's, it, they, you know, I didn't even work at it, but they're gone. Both the voices are gone and the orchestras are gone. And, you know, I don't know when they went away. I think it was actually at the ending up going to therapy that those things went away. So I guess I'm 43. So I've had them for a very long time. Um, so that that's a little bit of what would be like my dissociative comfort spaces uh, prior to therapy. That's what that looked like. Um, oh, there's so simple dissociative. Oh, well, in another... I think that uh, I think all of us do that I learned in therapy is just simple dissociations like on your commute, maybe to and from work, where you just kind of zone out and you get from A to B and you don't know how you got from A to B, right. listening to music, listening to the radio, listening to podcasts, and um, just kind of numbing yourself to this bumper to bumper traffic. Um, for me, I went a little bit further in that I would be driving to and from work and um, it was a stage in my life where I wasn't happy with my career and I was very angry that the Alex Fraser bridge was keeping me from seeing my daughter and people and accidents, you know, every hating everybody in the world for, yeah, for all this. Been there, yep. Yeah, we've all been there. <laughs> and I would, um, I felt like if I let go of the steering wheel that I was going to like, I kid you not float out of my car. I, I could not feel my bum in my car seat. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, 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 there was like, my body was physically floating away. Mm. And that's another part of dissociation is you feel like you're floating. And um, so if I knew if I let go, I was going to go up through the sunroof and see you, Rebecca. Wow. Oh my goodness. I cannot, I just can't wait to get into more of this because, and I appreciate your honesty with this too, because it's conversations that we just simply aren't having. There are, there is a world of people walking around with degrees of trauma that yeah. aren't recognizing that a lot of this is, and again, I'm going to put in air quotes, normal trauma responses. Yeah. This yeah. is very normal yeah. for somebody who's experienced such horrendous trauma and abuse yeah. and needing yeah. to not actually be in their own physical body because their yes. own physical body is now unsafe. Who exactly. You, you need to remove yourself in order to stay safe. And that is what you do as a child, right? You, your child only, you only know uh, survival instinct, right. right? There's no control over it. It's just your, your brain does what it has to do to keep its child self safe. And then you develop these uh, dissociative tendencies. For some people, it actually gets even bigger into dissociative identity disorder, right. um, which would have previously been called like uh, schizophrenia, multiple personality disorder. But um, so I, I haven't been diagnosed um, with, with that, mm -hmm. only that I use dissociation to cope with what was happening. Right. And I think if folks are listening, um, uh, 
something that's also common is when you see your dreams or when you like think about your day yesterday, uh, how do you see it? Do you see it from your own eyes or do you see it from a bird's eye view, third person? And, you know, if you see it from third person or a bird's eye and you've had some trauma in your life that you have not processed, that you have just thought it's gone away, there's a chance that you're not actually fully present um, if that is how you visualize anything yesterday, what you ate for breakfast, sit down and try to picture yourself eating your breakfast today. Do you picture yourself, like, do you see the spoon coming to your mouth or do you see yourself sitting at the table eating? And my therapist taught me that you can untrain that. I don't know how yet I haven't, I haven't gone down that path, but you know, you, this becomes a habit for say, even if you've healed your traumas and worked through them, you can still be stuck in this habit of not actually being totally present. So wow. it's a work in progress. Yeah. And I, this is, this is so great, Rebecca. So great. I, I mean, I've done trauma therapy over the years myself as well. And there's always this kind of split to between, is this a healthy coping mechanism in the sense that at some point or another, it had to protect you. That was all you knew. And therefore we're sort of grateful for the dissociation in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. But after a while, when it becomes a pattern behavior, that's maybe over years after the trauma is kind of long done and over and infiltrating your regular life existence, there comes a time when we have to sort of unlearn it. And that is a lifelong process. This is not something that happens overnight. No, it is lifelong. And I won't lie it sometimes like if I'm triggered, I just, I'm happy to go away to my dissociative comfort space. I'm, I'm good. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I'm just, this is, this is, this is what I know. I'm comfortable here. I don't want to cry. I don't want to feel that. That's too, that's too vulnerable. Oh, I so relate to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah like, but well, that's, we're not here to do that. Right. We are here to stop that. Yeah. And to and feel, hard. and to feel it's very, very yeah. hard. I'm yeah. deeply curious about how this relationship with your mother affected other relationships in your life in general, in general. So we, I backtrack here and I, we go back to our earlier conversation about learning to please my mother in order to stay safe. So I think a lot of us people pleasers who have had trauma um, and that haven't had a chance to heal from their trauma and process it, this becomes your way of life. You become a person who is liked by everybody. You're very agreeable Um, you make friends really easily. You keep relationships. Um, you don't really have your own point of view. You kind of just go with what the majority is. And so I believe that my relationship with my mother and how I was, how I guess I trained myself without knowing to please her, um, that made me that kind of person, you know, I am here to be, um, blend in with the wall, if you will. And you're, you're just going to like me because if I rock the boat with you, you might leave or you might hurt me. And so I don't, I don't want to feel that. So I'm just going to think I'm just going to, I'm just going to be you. Right. Okay. I'm going to be exactly what you need. Mm -hmm. Don't make waves because God forbid you will remove love from me. Yeah. You're going to leave me. And I've worked my whole life to make sure that um, my mom didn't leave me because that was my source of security. And so that's, that's the pattern that I know is that it's, it's more important to keep to keep that relationship, even if it um, is only one-sided. Right. Okay. This is incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. This all, this whole story, your back, like your backstory, 
this lives now in a book, which feels so extraordinarily brave to me, Uh, truly. I mean, not just like coming on a podcast and telling us these very intimate details about what this feels like for you in your world and what it, what you made all of that mean as a child and how that really evolves into your adulthood. Now your book is actually called Rebecca Grows Up Mm -hmm. at in parentheses, like I said, at 40, 40, (laughs) at 40, literally having to grow your own self up is pretty profound anyway. But tell us about, I I think the question that strikes me is why did you decide to write a book, first of all? And I mean, knowing, I know this very well, because of course, the power of really owning who you are and turning to service and really kind of putting it out in the world. But um, why did you decide to share this? You know, I've been asked that, and I know that that's a question that I'm going to be asked as I move forward in this journey. And it's a really tough one for me. Um, and I, I think that for me, I, I, I always felt like I had a story in me to share. But as long as I was connected to my mom, I knew that I, oh, I there was just I, I couldn't do that um, because I was connected with her still. And how could I write about these things that happened to me and then also have a relationship with her? Oh, it's just. I knew that, so I just had a dream, but I, that dream couldn't be fulfilled. And so, um, five years ago, this past December was five years ago since I left my mom. And, uh, that was, uh, when my real personal journey started to happen. And, um, I, I started to feel free, um, that I, I could recall these memories and start talking about it. Mm. And, and that's, that's the impetus to starting to share my story. And it just felt um, getting it all out there was as th- equally therapeutic as seeing my psychiatrist twice a week. <laughs> I, <laughs> I totally relate to that. The sharing of story, I think is so like, I can't even describe how therapeutic the process can be really. Yeah. Yeah. I'm putting it out there. When you say you left your mom, was that a, a just a decision that one day for you felt yeah. like this has to happen or I won't get healthy? you know, exactly. That's how it happened. And I, I think I had said to friends before, and also to my husband at the time, there's going to come a day when I say goodbye to my mom, I, I know that that is going to happen. So I, I always knew that it, I would get to a breaking point And I, I wish that I had had the strength to not make it get to a breaking point. Right. But I, and I would have that now, and then I did not, but it did, it came, it all came to a head. Uh, she was really pushing and pushing me. And um, it always had to do with my with my, with my daughters and, um, extreme control insecurities and jealousies, uh, around my daughters and their relationship with my in-laws at the time and very unhealthy attachment. And, um, I had asked her for some space. Um, it was just after Christmas and I had said, um, I, I need some space. And she, um, uh, if you, if we know about narcissistic behavior, uh, her, the next morning I woke up to all of the Christmas gifts I had given her on my porch of the house along with um, countless cards that I had ever written to her um, to, to for her to prove to me you know she, that's what a child does you know you hear fine I'm going to have a bad breakup and I'm going to put all your stuff out on your porch for you so um, and some some things after that happened where she she tried to take me to court to have access to my daughters and that's not how that part of the court system works that's not what that grandparent um if you ever to look it up that's not what that grandparent right is for it has an entirely different so she did drop her case but um with those events I had to say uh, I'm I I don't I I have to ask you to please leave me alone um and that wasn't ever my intent I when I asked her for some space I 
I didn't expect it to be forever. Mm -hmm. uh, but with people who are as unhealthy as her, you know, mentally unwell, it's just, it's really not possible for you to grow and maintain a relationship with them. Because mm -hmm. um, uh, my good friend, Aaron, told me once that boundary breakers don't like boundaries. Boundary breakers don't like boundaries. So true. So, so true. true. Oh my goodness. And it has rung with me and it still gives me goosebumps. And I hope that Aaron, you listen to this podcast. Is this our mutual friend, Aaron? <laughs> it's not actually. Oh, I was going to um, say, we have uh, a mutual friend, Aaron. Yeah. yeah we'll show I just realized that too. <laughs> Hi, Aaron too. <laughs> Hi, Aaron, Aaron one and Aaron two. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, so, yeah. Anna, it's a good one, right? It is a good one. And it's interesting to me actually that um, you describe this moment, this kind of breakup with your mom as being not a strong decision for you, or you weren't strong enough to do it in a way that, and I just, I literally had a visceral reaction and thinking, I don't know that I've even heard a more strong Oh, story. Make me cry on your story. Um, I'm not even sure I'm articulating this properly because I'm, I'm just using emotion in this, but I really think, I, I don't know that I could even get to the strength that would be required. Truly, like there's nothing but strength in that for me, even just asking for space. My goodness, what a breath of like a deep breath yeah. for anybody out there, maybe dealing with a, a yeah. relationship with a narcissist. Yeah. yeah. Or somebody, I don't know how, what the PC mm -hmm. way of saying, somebody living with narcissistic personality disorder, yeah. Yeah. Um, but just asking for space and, and it wasn't you. It really wasn't you that sort of instigated the breakup. Asking for yeah. space is allowed. You are allowed to ask for space. You are. And I think if I can, I'm not changing the trajectory, but I just- Oh, please do. Go where you if, need to go. Yeah. If someone listening, or if you're a friend of someone who is in a situation like this, um, unfortunately, if when I did this, my, it was gonna, going to be my six-year-old's birthday in a boat. She's December 31st. And right. so it was coming up to her first birthday. And I- my friend was a childhood friend since I was like 12 and she, she really knew all about my mom. And, um, when I told her what I had done, she, um, she told me that I'm going to regret my decision and that I should let her come to my daughter's birthday party. And I felt, I really, I, I get choked up talking about this now because I felt really heartbroken. Like how, how come you don't believe me? How come you don't, how come you don't trust my decision? I, 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 she comes from a very loving home, loving parents. And um, I feel like if, if any of our listeners here are friends with someone who doesn't come from a loving home to just support them oh. when they make these decisions, because I, I felt really strong, but then my lifelong friend was telling me I did it wrong. And it, it, uh, it, it really, it really hurt me. Mm-hmm. Oh. So that I didn't mean to change the trajectory, but I feel oh, like it fits I'm in so there. Glad. I'm so, okay. so glad you did. There is something that um, has been kind of actually weighing on me for quite some time. And you've inspired me to say it out loud. So I'm going to do it on this podcast okay. is that, um, and it's maybe I, I oversold that it's not deeply personal, but I've had this thought around um, the sharing of stories that were at one point or another traumatic. Mm -hmm. And this really ties into that, that question we had anyway about why did you even write this book? And I've had a lot of people over the years say to me as a storyteller and somebody who shares stories of, uh, like I share the gamut of emotions. We just don't do yeah. just happiness and joy here. We do yeah. all the human experience. Yeah. And 
in that I've been criticized from time to time for kind of putting trauma on display. And I go back to my personal experience with this a lot. And I think, you know, what do I know? What do I know? Not just academically, what I've learned through training and therapy and also going back to school and learning psychology and all this. What do I actually know from my personal experience is not that it's the sharing of our trauma and our triggers that is harmful because it's not. In fact, it is the only way through it. It's the only way to break through it. It is so, it's so deeply important what is painful and what ends up re-triggering trauma and what ends up re-harming is when that story is not welcomed or validated or believed. I can't, you've, you hit it on the head. I get goosebumps every time. And I, uh, that is it. It's you share it. And then someone gaslights you. That's it. That's it. It is the, the responsibility is not in the person who's experienced trauma to stay silent because they they may either trigger somebody or re-trigger themselves or not talk about it in the way they should or articulate it incorrectly. It is really the collective audience. That's all of us. The collective audience's responsibility to receive stories in a compassionate way and validate them and believe them. Yep. And you don't have to even it's impossible to put ourselves in other people's shoes because we can never have the same lived experience. And I, yes. I, I get that saying, put yourself in someone's shoes. It, it means well, it, it, but it doesn't, we can't ever do that. So the only lens you can have is have empathy and, and belief and trust in your friend. Oh, I'm just like yeah. nodding. My whole body is like nodding right now. I'm like, this is, this is so true. Yes. So and now that I've shared my story and you know, it's new and people are engaging with me and sending me private messages of their own journeys and thanking me for sharing. And that gives us all strength to continue sharing. When someone tells me that, um, that that helped them or they have a shared experience and um, it just, that that's why we share our stories is especially for these difficult, like you said, you talk about the gamut of the human experience. We're not just here to be happy and joyful, but when we share the hard stuff, the stuff that's embarrassing, the stuff that's shameful. Um, and we're not here to protect the people who did these bad things. No, of course. That, why do I have to protect that person? I, I, I have to heal from the effects of that. And you know what? I would be able to move forward with my mom if she came to me and said, I'm really sorry for what I did. I'm really sorry that I didn't make I don't know. Do we be sorry for not making better decisions? I don't necessarily need that from her. I need her to, to tell others that I'm not lying as she's done. That's it. Right? But I'm, yeah. yeah, like we're not, I'm not here to protect her and she's not a bad person and we can all heal and grow. And I just, um, yeah, that's, yeah. We're, we don't have to protect the people who have chosen to not better themselves. No, it's so true. It's so true. That self-awareness is so huge, isn't it? I mean, just to even get over that hurdle. And the fact of the matter is, is there are some people in the world who will spend their entire life here, not reaching the level of awareness that's required. And that is painful, painful Mm -hmm. for those around them. It's particularly a mother-child relationship. There isn't really a more powerful bond, Mm -mm. frankly. And for that relationship to, for you, I mean, you can't wait her entire life to hear what you need to hear no and I can't and so as long as uh people like her don't want to uh take their next step then I have to check out you know I have to go live my life and uh 
and, yes. and, and remove myself from toxic. Yeah. And yet what a beautiful and kind, kind of compassionate invitation that you just shared, which is I will be here if ever that yeah. moment, I'm not gone. I'm not gone, gone. No. I am protected. There are boundaries around myself and particularly yeah. your children. My goodness, speaking of mother yeah. child bonds, that's one thing that'll inspire you to really step up and yeah. kind of like wrangle yeah. that. If that I wasn't strong right. before I am now. Yeah. You sure are now, I tell you. <laughs> um, but that's it. I mean, what it's to even be in compassion and be in that space of just I'm not gone, gone. The, yeah. the window is open. Maybe the door is closed, but the, there's a window yeah. open here if ever. But until then, I'm going to move on and I'm going to share my story and I'm going to be in service to other people who are really struggling with this. And that is, I mean, it's it's so profound and it really is at the crux of kind of the work that I do as well is shifting this um, post-traumatic kind of environment, this dissociation, this trauma, this pain, and shifting it into something that's more purposeful. And purpose is just rooted in service. It's like, how do I help somebody else not experience this, or at least some, in some way, turn the corner on this in a way that I felt at one point I couldn't. I think like one of the biggest things I have learned through this journey right now is I now know what forgiveness feels like. Oh, wow. Oh, tell me, please tell me. I would love you to describe that. All right. So I, I would, I, before I didn't really know what does forgiveness mean? I I don't know because I had too much anger and sadness and hurt inside me that how can I forgive that? I I can't, I can't forgive those words that came out of your mouth. I can't forgive that hand that came across my face. And how, how do I know when I forgive? And in all these people, you know, they talk about forgiveness is about inside. It's not about, it's not about the other person. It's about yourself. I don't know how any of that feels, but you know, I felt really enlightened one day when I realized I had forgiven my mom and I knew I had forgiven her because I, I started crying when I thought of her coming into pain, somebody harming her. Oh, wow. And I, um, I didn't like, I didn't, I thought that must be forgiveness. I I don't, there was a time I'm not going to lie to you or the people that I was like, I want her to happen to her. What happened to me? I want her to know how this feels. Um, and I, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want that anymore. That feeling is gone. And so this journey has taught me that forgiveness really, it is about inside. It is about you forgiving yourself. You don't have to, as we've all seen that meme on Facebook, you know, you don't, I can forgive you, but that doesn't mean I want you at my dinner table. A hundred. Yeah. Right. And so now I know what forgiveness feels like. It's like, I, I have forgiven what happened to me and I, I don't wish any harm on my mom. Wow. That is a really, really powerful takeaway. Incredibly powerful takeaway. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to shift into your professional career All right. in infant development and attachment yes. parenting and, and yes. coaching because, um, gosh, you've got a lot of, of amazing yeah. tips here that I really want to share with the audience. Okay. So All right. um, what you do now, and I'm sure you'll help clarify this, is but you mm-hmm. function as a home-based visitor right in kind of infant development stage that's right supporting parents and their infants um, and then you also co-facilitate educational parent groups and work alongside families to help support development so tell me about your work your all right I have the best job in the world I love it Um, it. yeah so um so yes I'm a home-based visitor in infant in the infant development world we are funded by the Ministry of Children and Family Development and um all the cities here in the lower mainland have different chapters I guess you would call it that work out of different 
different nonprofits. I am talking way too fast here. See how excited oh, I get? Oh, no, I yeah. love it. I yeah. love passion. So um, we have, uh, so our program, Infant Development, works with families who have children age zero to age three. And referrals come to our program via public health nurses, pediatricians, um, uh, the hospitals, NICUs, uh, anyone, even parents. There's no criteria to be in our program. Right. And the reason referrals come to us is there's maybe a possibility for a delay. Uh, monitoring for a delay in development for a variety of reasons. Um, the majority of referrals we get are for premature babies. Um, so preemies that come out a little bit early or extremely early, uh, we give them extra time to catch up to their milestones and we are there to help parents feel really great about um, their child's, their baby's development, give them peace of mind. So that those that's why we get referrals to our program. We all carry anywhere from about 25 to 40 families at a time on our caseload. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we go to families' homes after the referral comes in. And we um, we use assessments, we use screeners uh, that have developmental markers, and we observe the baby's play and talk to the parents about how things are going with their baby. Uh, we have we're trained. We're, we look at ourselves as generalists. Um, uh, in all areas of infant development. So gross motor, fine motor, speech, um, personal social development. Um, so we are looking at uh, certain markers and, and seeing how the, the overall development is going on with mm. the child. And if we are, the parents are concerned or we have some concerns that maybe the baby might need a little bit of extra support or help, then we help facilitate the referrals to the necessary organizations like speech and language therapy or physiotherapy or OT, um, even like mental health. We have uh, families that refer to early childhood mental health as well. So um, yeah, we go to families' homes, depending on the need, either once a month, once every six weeks. Some families we'll see only once every six months if everything is going well. And again, it sometimes families feel a little bit nervous because our funding does come from the Ministry of Children and Family Development. Right. Um, but we are a family-centered program. We are there to help support the parents and um and it, parents can opt out at any time, but most, I don't know any parents that opt out because they love, who doesn't love someone to come to their home and focus on their oh, baby and, you know, yes. yeah. And when we're done, we send the parents a really nice home visit summary that outlines everything we talked about, all the milestones their baby reached. And we offer suggestions if needed to help further along different areas or just general suggestions to help, mm -hmm. um, help make play a little bit more fun. So very play-based and, um, like I said, it's family centered. It's driven by what the parents' needs and goals are, and um, and we work alongside a lot of our community partners to just um, to, to to help make sure these families have the connections and the resources that they need. Um, and you asked about we run Mother Goose, so we do parent we do run parent groups. So we run Mother Goose is my favorite, and we have all um, you know COVID has put a big wrench in all of these. Oh, Nothing's the totally. same by Zoom with our families, but we we made it work. Um, so yeah, so I run, we run mother goose programs. Uh, we have infant massage and, um, we used to have a, uh, a play group as well, but numbers dropped a bit. So we haven't been offering that. Mm -hmm. Um, and the types of training that we go to regularly are attachment based parenting. So really there's for the parents to, um, know that responding to your baby is probably the best thing that you can do. All they need is to be loved and responded to. Um, I love and that. so that that is probably why I love my job so much as well. Is that yeah, what it like? I mean, it's so maybe not all that surprising at this point in your life looking back, but it's just such a full circle moment for you. It's like it's almost like going back and again, you kind of get to reparent. Yes, 
versions know, of yourself, little versions of yourself. Yeah, I, you know, I have a big smile on my face right now uh, because I write in my book that um, I've been doing this job since 2013. So when I still had a relationship with my mom and before my second daughter was born, and now it's 2021. This summer, I've been doing this for is that eight years, I guess. Right. So, I'm like, uh, I, I know, I know. Where's my math. Yeah. So I write in my book that I owe credit to each and every one of the families that have been on my caseload for being my parenting toolbox. Wow. I go oh. into their homes and I, I see things that are the same as me. I see people having the same challenges. And then I see other parents and I'm like, how come you don't care? And like, no, 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 that's wrong. Not how come you don't care, but like, you are so easygoing with your baby yes. crying. Like you are so self-aware and know that your baby's okay, that that crying is, it's okay. Your baby's just talking. And that took me like a long time to realize that. No, my baby's right. crying. I need to fix this. There right. are no emotions, but happy in my home. <laughs> <laughs> you will not feel sadness. This is, it, it's so fascinating to me to see the journey of like, uh, just human beings in general, but the journey yeah. that people take through really painful experiences and, and convert that into this, this beauty and this magic that you help other people with. Talk yeah. to me a little bit, just like, you know, in just, just I'm going to say a short period of time, but you take as much time as you need, <laughs> but just plug in kind of the academia around attachment styles for me, just so that people listening will understand what we mean when we're talking about a okay. secure attachment yeah. or an insecure attachment. I know there's several varieties. Yeah. Of so when we talk about a secure attachment, we're talking about a baby who has learned that their needs are going to be met by their main caregiver. So we know that that baby has been attended to when it has needed support. Um, and so that's based, that is a simplified version of what it is to, uh, to have an attack, um, like a positive attachment Perfect. with the, the parent and the child is that's the most important thing is that the, the baby is not confused as to whether they're going to get fed or their needs to be met. So baby only has crying. That's its only way to communicate. Mm -hmm. And um, when they cry and their needs aren't met, they have learned if this is repeated, we're not just talking about that short time. We're talking about even neglectful situations. So when a baby is left to cry for uh, over and over and over again for throughout its infancy, it, it learned early on that its communication was ineffective. Mm -hmm. it, that baby learned that my crying did not get me the help that I needed. So I got to figure this out and these wires in their brain and the connections there, they are then confused and that can become disorganized attachment to their main caregiver. And so we see that um, in my work, we, uh, uh, part of our job is also for all of the foster children under three that are in foster homes in Richmond come to our program as well. Part of the ministry's mandate is that the foster babies will be monitored. So um, I visit some beautiful foster homes and we, we see disorganized attachment and we see these babies um, very confused. And then we see them thrive as soon as they get that love and that response that they you can see the rewiring start to happen. Yeah. Um, oftentimes when the foster babies are then, I'm kind of veering off schedule here off the topic no, of it. No, it's okay. No, it's great. Uh, when the babies are then uh, perhaps gone to revisit that stressful environment where they were perhaps triggered, then we can see the babies take a bit of, uh, we can see them regress Wow. because they've been re-triggered. And so it's a bit of a, it's, it's a bit of a dance is mm. uh, to help reconnect with moms and dads or grandparents or aunts, if there's been a triggering event, um, while trying to push forward towards positive attachment, it can be 
yeah, it takes time. So that's a bit about attachment parenting is all about making sure that infant knows that they, that their communication is effective and that they will be responded to. Wow. That's big. Yeah. yeah. So that's, um, the, the foundation of our program is, yeah. is, uh, all about letting parents know pick up your baby, hold your baby, uh, train your baby to sleep, do, do what you need. Just you, you touch your baby, pat your baby's back, do what you need to do. Um, just so your baby knows that, that their cry is effective. Oh, I love that. And I've been saying my, my kids think probably know that their cry is now too effective. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Me too. Yeah. I think I've gone overboard. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I would definitely went overboard in the emotional. You will not feel anything but happy in in my home. Yes. Yes. Oh, you and me both. You and me both. Yeah. We could probably do a workshop on that. I'm sure. Probably. Yeah. (laughs) We'll bring in, we both have 11 year olds and we both have six year olds. So we'll bring them in. We may as well carry the three month old into just because (laughs) I'm sure he's the cute one, right? Yeah. Yeah. We'll bring the baby in. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? But I love this offering that you have. I mean, in so many ways, but Mm -hmm. I'm curious with your book. So Rebecca grows up with the book. What do you want the world to take from this book? I mean, I'm sure it's such a big, big offering. All right. So I, I put a lot of thought into, into this, you know, what, what is it? Well, what is it that I want? At first I write my book. I wrote it for myself, right? Here's some therapy for me and get it all out and actually look at what happened in my life and how I, how I have come around and tried to heal and continue to work on healing myself. Okay. So why did I do it? And I, I think now there are a few different groups of people that I've written my book for. And if a young adult was to read my book right now, um, and a young adult who has had childhood abuse or emotional abuse from their primary caregiver, um, I want them to know that they can't hide their trauma. You can't run away from it. And if you don't deal with your trauma, you are, it's going to grow inside you. It's going to manifest and it's going to start to affect all your relationships. But most importantly, it is going to affect the relationship that you have with yourself. So I need all of these young adults who have had similar shared experiences to find, find someone safe to talk to that can help you. Someone like a professional therapist in BC, psychiatry is covered by MSP. So that's something that I think not a lot of people know. I don't know what the wait lists are like. I didn't have a wait list when I started my therapy, but um, it is covered by MSP. So if you can get your family doctor to refer you to a psychiatrist, you do not have to pay for your therapy. Mm. Okay. So uh, that's what I would like young adults to know. Um, for the adults that are reading my story that have had similar experiences, uh, if you think that there's even a chance that your trauma is driving your choices, your reactions, um, your, your overall behaviors, you need to start talking. You need to also find a therapist because um, even like with all the power inside you to do right, all that, all that work you're doing to, to do it right and not repeat the past, um, it is up there. It's infiltrating your relationships that you have, especially the one that you have with yourself. And you are probably not the real you right now. If you have unresolved trauma, you, you might not I'm going to go out a limb and say, you probably don't know who you are and you deserve to know who you are. You deserve it. Find out who you are, fix your traumas. You know, I would say to these uh, young adults and, and adults that um, you deserve to find out who you are in your core mm. and um, therapy can help you do that. So again, find a therapist and start talking. 
find a therapist mm-hmm. and start talking. You deserve to know who you are and yes. you deserve, I'm going to circle us back right to the beginning of this recording. You deserve to know who you are, but also you deserve, as you wrote in your Instagram post, to be loved for just yes. being. You. Yes. You deserve love for deserve being that. the genuine, honest you. And that's going to feel really weird mm-hmm. at first. It's going to feel you, weird. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to, you, you will be worried that people aren't going to love you for just who you are. And as you find out who you are and start being who you are, you would, I would prepare yourself that you will lose some people. Some people are going to leave because they are going to, what my therapist said to me, what she said to me was the relationship they have with you is based on the Rebecca that satisfies the needs of others. So if I'm not going to be there satisfying their needs, uh, we don't have a relationship Mm. because I know how to say no now. Mm. And are you going to like me still if I say no? Well, if you don't like me, then our relationship is not based on um, you liking the person that I actually am. Right. And so you have to be prepared that you might lose some people that you maybe you think you love. Right. Because the person you actually are has needs and feelings. Oh, wow. Hey, imagine that. Imagine that mind blowing (laughs) revelation. (laughs) Yeah. And the last group of people that I would like, if they were to read my book, if, if you are a friend of someone who, um, who you maybe recently learned that has had trauma in their life from their, I'm really talking about their primary caregiver. So their mom or their dad, or maybe both. Um, if they've had bad things happen by their parents, I would just want to say that, um, ask us questions about our trauma, try to understand us a little bit. Um, if you think that, if you think that your friend can talk about their trauma, depends on how well you know them, ask them, show that, show that you're interested and be there to support us and support us in our decisions. Mm. Um, because without your support, I think that you will lose us because we're going to feel safe to be vulnerable with you. And so I think if, if you don't really know how to be, yeah, if you don't know how to support someone who's been through trauma, but you want to, that, that I don't know if that's helpful or not. That's what would be helpful for me is for, to ask me more about what happened and just try to show that you want to have a deeper understanding and, and support me and believe me. And believe me, oh, what a, mm-hmm. I mean, what a gift you are to clearly to your clients, to my listeners today. This has been profound. Thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, Anna, thank you. So many levels. And what yeah. a gift you must be to your three children who oh. are raised with somebody who is so self-aware and so, I mean, parenting is a challenge all the time. We are never perfect. Yeah. It's not the goal, yeah. but to yeah. even just to stay yeah. in awareness of our roles and responsibilities as parents and, yeah. and to just, you know, powerful I'm trying is. so hard all the time and I'm trying to stay present and, you know, um, with my dissociations, I shared with you that I see my memories and dreams from a bird's eye view. I'll tell you the only time when I think of memories uh, that I see from first person are when I'm holding my children. Oh, yeah. 
And I said that to my therapist right near the end of my work. And I was like, I can look when I'm holding my baby in my arms, I am seeing my through my eyes, looking at my baby. So I'm, that must tell me that is when I am so present. It's unbelievable. Mm. I, I, I can't think of another reason why those are the only memories that I'm seeing first person. Well, I'll so, tell you, I believe, I mean, as a parent myself, I believe that in yeah. every cell right now, yeah. as you say that I can, I can, I don't know why I'll never be able to articulate it. I'm sure. But I would, I would yeah. agree. That's probably is you being entirely present with that yeah. love. Yeah. That love, right. That's all. That's it. That, that's all we have to do is love them. And when my 11 year old, I'm sure your 11 year old is getting sass and attitude. Oh, you bet. Knows everything. Yep. <laughs> gets angry with me. I can't tell you how happy I am. She is safe. She is safe. And I can't, um, I can't ask for anything else. Oof. I don't even know how to answer that. It's so, it feels so powerful yeah. having like physical reactions to this. It's so yeah. moving. Uh, I just want to wrap this up by asking. Yep what's next for you? Is there a, is there a sequel? Is there a part two to Rebecca's growing up journey? You know, I think that there has to be, I love writing. I love writing on Instagram. It's such a beautiful platform that I'm using to write out quick things that come to my mind and memories. So I, I love to write. And I, I think that the next step for me is to write my story or my journey on doing shared parenting. Ah, yes. (laughs) Um, I miss my daughters. Like I'm sure you can imagine when they're at their dad's and they love being at their dad's and they have, they have, we have a great working relationship. I'm really proud of how far he and I have come um, in this journey. But a man, I tell you when this is a weekend where they're gone for four nights. And so I think two years in, well, three, close to three years in is, I don't know if it gets easier. So I I think you just learn how to, um, yeah, you just, you just learn how to find happy when they're happy. It's me. So that maybe is what's next for me. I might ride this wave of the emotional journey of learning how to be separate from your children. It's still healthy to be separate, but to be separated. Uh, my therapist na- named it perfectly is called a forced separation. So this wasn't a natural growing up and then leaving the nest. It was a forced separation and it was at my hands. I was the one who initiated these, um, the, the separation. So yeah, that's my next that's my next journey, Anna. So yeah, I may have to, I mean, maybe have you back and we'll talk about (laughs) like this kind of co-parenting situation and trying to, to figure this out because that's another big topic. I'm sure. Yeah, I know we're not alone. I'm not alone in that. There's a lot of us. And whenever my kids come home and tell me that so-and-so also goes to their mom and dad's, I'm like, okay, just for them to not be alone. And that helps me. Um, so I will come back anytime. I told you I love to talk and I spent half of grade one in the coat room because I talk too much. So, so. <laughs> I love it. I love <laughs> Thank it. Thank you for I've... bringing these emotions out in me today. This has I been really beautiful. It really has been. I thank you so tremendously. And I know, yeah. I just know, because I can feel the listeners. I know they're probably just having, they're yeah. just giving their children hugs today and hugging themselves yeah. back their yeah. own kind of inner child. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Anna. Thank you so much. That was such a beautiful and profound conversation. I truly, I'm going to do my outro here. My secrets are, secrets are out segment that I usually do at the end of every recording. 
And I don't really have a ton I want to add because I think that conversation was so profound and so rich and so deep, but I just wanted to share some love. That was sort of the theme that came through today. I wanted to share love for not just the children out there who are really struggling through this pandemic and being darn resilient as well, even though sometimes we don't see their resilience or we don't see their struggle, just the way that they sort of have navigated this has been really amazing to watch as a parent, but also sharing some love for the parents out there as well. It's maybe less of a secret, less of a disclosure today in this segment, but more of just a giant pandemic parenting hug because parenting truly is challenging at the best of times. It's freaking hard. It's really hard wondering if we're doing it right, questioning what we've done wrong, Oh, it's just endless. And then you add to that the mounting pressures and fear of wondering if your children are safe and if you're, you're really keeping them safe, especially right now. So I just want to give you a hug. That's what I want to do. I just want to say I'm right there with you. I have had some really hard days this last year. There's been a lot of days where we're hiding and we're crying and we're avoiding the world and Other days where, you know, you're just putting one foot in front of the other to do what needs to be done. And as it always does, we've kind of, we're here, we're here and we're talking and you're here and you're listening. And so just imagine me as this episode wraps up, imagine me just wrapping you up in a giant hug and sharing with you whatever love and comfort that you need right now. Until next time. Thank you for joining this edit of the Unapologetic Stories podcast. If you're ready to share your truth and rewrite your personal life story, connect with me at unapologeticstories.com for all the details on speaker training, storytelling, and strategizing your way through this one big life. If you've enjoyed listening, we would love for you to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast listening app or Apple Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Unapologetic Anna for new speaker training start dates. Until next time, stay brave, stay unapologetic, and keep bringing in your truth.